What's going on, guys? Welcome to this episode of the Collecting Keys Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today is the Wednesday Mike and Dan show where I, Mike DeHaan, and my co-host here, Dan Austin, talk real estate investing, business, and everything in between. And uh, tell you what, I'm so glad that we run a virtual business reading about the shitstorm that has been going on at some of these companies that have started requiring to come people to come back. They'll call back to office. Yeah. Hey, someone's got to be here while we pay the heating bill kind of the situation. <laughs> Dude, I, I'm hearing about it all over the place, right? Like in, on, on Reddit, I've seen it pop up in a bunch of different spots, a bunch of different subreddits about people that are super up in arms about it. And the thing is, is some of these companies, right? Like they own the buildings. They like need a use case for the building that they're owning. Yeah. But th some of the crazier stuff is in like the commercial real estate investment space where they had these huge buildings that were being leased yep. up by companies that are, you know, the companies are like, well, we're staying virtual. And there was one, I saw this posted that the property was valued at $300 million in San Francisco, $300 million building in 2019. And they are going yeah, to sell it and they are expecting offers to come in in the 50 to $60 million range. That's pretty wild. They've lost like $250 million in value. So who's lost the $250 million? The owner. So it'd be whatever fund owns the property, right? That was leasing it. So the, the was it, do you think it was 100% uh, investor money or do you think there's debt oh, behind it that they're not going to be I able gotcha. to pay? Because yeah. my guess is, is on a $300 million, there's probably some sort of capital stack and debt's probably part of it. Yeah. And somebody's not getting paid. Yeah, it's probably a bunch of maybe a bunch of LPs, a bunch of yeah. funds, things like that that are losing a huge amount of money there. Fortunately, a lot of the people that were buying this stuff are from China in the last 10 years. So Yeah, that's right. They're probably thinking the same thing. So better than the, the way that their currency is <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. They're like, eh, this is all fake yeah, money anyways. Yeah. But no, it's been interesting though. And then like the social side of it too, I've seen so many people that are like, looking to leave jobs, transfer over to these virtual businesses. So upset, like stopping their feet, they have to go back to work. And it's like, yeah, that's part of the deal, I think. I know it's been a few years that you've been lucky to, to stay at home, but at some point, you sitting at home not doing shit, it's going to get called out and you're going to have to show yeah, back up. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a big thing that we've seen with the tech space, right, is they sort of realize that and they were like, oh, we have all this extra bloat that we don't need. That's why they had the huge layoffs. Yeah. And now a ton of other companies are going to start doing the same thing, uh -huh. right? Once people leave and all sorts of stuff, and they're like, wait, we're still as productive because all those people weren't actually doing anything. I think it's like maybe it's like by mistake, right? So they were okay with people doing nothing when uh -huh. they're in the office because traditionally a lot of people manage by button seat time. They're like, as long as they're here, they're, they're being productive. Or they, in the back of their mind, they think, well, as long as they're here, I can tell them to do something. I have no idea like what that perspective is, but I'm kind of making that guess here. Um, but when they were at home doing nothing, they couldn't feel like, they didn't feel like they could control it. So yeah. they got upset. So like, you're going to come back and do nothing here. And then they're finding out people are quitting so they're not wanting to come back. And they're like, oh shit, I guess we didn't. Yeah, need them. <laughs> right. It's like a management mistake that's turning into it is, success. Or something, like, I don't know. But I mean, think people need to realize with all this is, you know, if you work for these companies, the C-suite can make you do whatever they want. Yeah, that's why they're there. Yeah, if you don't like that, don't work for those companies. Like, go and... Right. Well, and like, they get upset, like, oh, the company's not, is not in alignment with my mission and goals. It's like, absolutely not. They're in alignment with the shareholders' yeah. mission and goals. Everything they say about you is just the pedal to you to keep you showing up to work. But really, they're there to make uh -huh. people money, including yourself. So if you don't like it, you're going to have to go somewhere else and find somebody that happens to be in alignment with you and your 
whatever life goals. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest farces about people that talk about having like a secure job. No, no. You know, it can be a secure paycheck, but it's not necessarily going to be secure in lifestyle. You know, they can change at any time. I mean, you saw that with people when they've had to go virtual, right? And then there was COVID. All right, right. So because of COVID and all that sort of stuff, and now it's going the opposite. People have gotten accustomed to the virtual environment. Now they're bringing brought back into the office and it's right. upheaving their whole life again. Their whole lifestyle. Yeah, so. exactly. Which like, I don't know, man, you need to be a little more nimble than that. Like if you're like setting up your entire life around like what's just happened, like a change that could be potentially temporary, you dumb. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason people get so worked up about it though is because, I mean, most people are getting worked up. It's because they aren't hireable, honestly. <laughs> like right. if we're being just completely... They're like, I don't want my circumstances to change. I'm so comfortable here and I don't think I can do anything else. Yeah, they're else. just completely lucky to be wherever it is, whatever company they move yeah. themselves into. And if they did have to go find something else, they're not going to be able to. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But like either way, I think it's just so valuable to have this virtual gig, like this virtual business. That's something that's come up a lot of times. There's a lot of DMs I've been exchanging people the last little bit. It's been like, you know, how do you build a work culture and how do you do all these sort of things? And it is more challenging with the virtual business, but honestly, having like the podcast yeah. makes it easier. Right. Because a lot of the people that work for us now, you know, they looked up our business when they started job listings. They went and listened to the podcast. They know kind of what we're about. That is the basis of the culture. Um, and they can have a sense of connection to the people that are operating the business because they can listen to us on this thing three times a week. You know? Right. And some, you get some level of transparency that yeah. an engagement and relationship with a person, like anybody that's listening to a podcast now, like you, there's people that listen to this that you and I have never met or even engaged with that have some, feel like they have a relationship just like you and I do with other podcast hosts. And so it's just another way to help build that culture or that employee experience or like just have that relationship with somebody in your company that otherwise you're not going to go and give them three hours of your time a week because there's just not another three hours of time of your week to give somebody one-on-one attention and talk about something that's important to you or that, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, along with that too, everyone's always worried about hiring, which I think is really funny when it comes to stuff like this. And when you have all these people that are trying to flee these companies that are making them go back to the office, mm-hmm. if you have like a legitimately decent job with good income potential and, you know, the flexibility of being remote, it is shockingly crazy how many applicants you get yeah. for jobs. Yep. Like we had a lot of our recent stuff. We're getting like hundreds of applicants over the first couple of days. I know. You know, to the point that it's so it's many. I'm just like, just turn it off. Like I, I can't even yeah. look at these. Yeah. And the funny thing is too, is I, I see this also on, on Reddit where I get most of my news and stuff from. You see all these stuff of like, I filled out 200 applications and I didn't get a call back from anybody. If you're that person, I promise 95% of the employers are not being dicks. You just got mixed in with the hundreds of other people. <laughs> your timing, yeah, your timing was, was terrible. terrible. And Sorry. we didn't even yeah. see it. And not only yeah. did we not see it, it's not even our fault. I would have liked to review it, but all right. the typical employment platforms like Indeed and LinkedIn and stuff, their system is so shitty that it's impossible yep. to screen them with any sort of efficiency. Like it's terrible. Right. And it's an unbelievably expensive. If you're an employee looking for work and you're like, I, you know, I didn't get a good shot at the job, just know that when you apply to a job at Indeed, they give me 72 hours to yay or nay your application or they're going to charge me like 70 bucks for your application. And you're mixed in with 150 people. So you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through like the top 10 in the list, 
right? Because that's all I have time for because it takes me 20 to 30 minutes to do each one. Yeah, to do a proper review. And then the rest of them I'm going to cancel. So don't charge me 500 bucks for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Three grand for applicants you don't even like. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, no, it's kind of a screwed up system when you're doing it that way. And that's why you have to maybe pursue a little bit and do a little bit of research and reach out on multiple platforms instead of saying, oh, this is the company. I mean, fortunately for us, we have a little bit of a brand name going through the podcast, but like if you're going to apply for collecting keys, go do some research, go find who the owners are and find the different platforms they're on and reach out and give, it's just like that little uh-huh. extra might get your resume to the stack, it, you know, seen in the stack. You might still get thrown out, but at least you know you got seen. Oh yeah. In fact, every single person that we've hired so far this year, they applied to a job application then they found me on Instagram or my email through our website and they reached out to me and said like, hey, look, and I had a ton of people that did that right. that I did not engage with because they did fit our criteria. But those people right. that we employed, they did that and that is why I looked at their resume. Boom. There you go. It's that simple. So you got to do the extra step. It's not quite as simple as just going on Indeed or LinkedIn or whatever and just like clicking down a bunch of stuff because yeah. we don't see them as employers. So back to kind of an earlier point you made on this because I've been hearing a lot of this lately in the the media fodder is the commercial real estate problem or issue. I don't know. What do you feel there? I mean, is there a, for people out there looking for a new asset class, is it time to pivot and look at something in the commercial space? It is so hard for me to get interested in commercial and like large multifamily real estate right now because I do not understand how people are still buying these properties with such an like not visible exit strategy. Like with residential, you can at least like throw it on the market or things. When you're buying like a $10 million asset, it's so different than that. You can throw it on the market, but that thing could take years to sell. And in that period of time, you know, interest rates shift more. It affects your purchase price, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, over the past several years, kind of that business model was, you know, you syndicate and this is what all like the other people's money out there. Like I retired buying apartment right. complex. You go and you syndicate, you buy a large asset, you do a value add project, increase the value of it, you know, by increasing rents, adding amenities, doing all sorts of stuff. So based off the cap rates of the property, the value goes up when you increase the the net income, right? So that's kind of how it went. But now as the cap rates got smaller and smaller and smaller, basically what you would do over the past five or six years is you would try to sell to the next syndicator that was going to do the next value add that would try and get an even tighter okay. cap rate. But now with interest rates and everything else that's going on in the economy, it has gotten so compressed and I don't know how you still do these value adds unless you're buying stuff at like massive discounts. But the problem is the stuff you're trying to buy at massive discounts is stuff that everyone is terrified of losing their ass. So they're just going to sit there. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah, it's an interesting situation and just for our listeners too to understand like where Mike's saying you sell the asset and somebody else comes in and buys it and, and tries to squeeze more juice. Part of the reason why these folks sell the assets, and not all syndicators do this, but a majority of the ones that you hear is because their IRR calculation forces them to sell it at the peak or where they think their peak profit will be, their peak internal rate of return, which is a time-based calculation. Mm -hmm. And also their investors want their goddamn money back. They're forced to because it was part of their agreement is they have to exit at a certain point. Yes. Well, it is. And the reason why I guess I'm saying that is because they look at their their IRR, again, time-based. So the longer they stay in the investment, at some point, the the actual return looks like it's going down from a rate of return standpoint. And so then that's up front. They say, we're going to buy year five, we're going to get you an 18% IRR, you know, which most guys probably never actually hit. But that's what they say they're going to get you, which might correlate to a totally different ROI. And so they're forced to do that. And then the next guy comes along and buys and tries to squeeze juice. And what 
we've seen so far, at least in my experience, what I've observed in the half dozen years I've been knowing what syndicators are, is money's been super cheap. Interest rates have kind of gone down, down, down. Cap rates have compressed, compressed, compressed because people people were willing to pay more <laughs> and more for those because money was so cheap. Where do you go from the floor on interest rates? Where do you go from the floor on cap rates when things are trading at like 2 and 3% caps? Like you can't go anywhere else. And so your point is like, I don't see an exit and people are still trying to buy. Now they're not buying at those completely compressed cap rates, but you're saying that they, you're, you just don't see another syndicator coming along right now to buy that piece of crap property. Yeah. Let's see, because that's the whole thing is in order to have mm-hmm. an exit, you have to have a buyer. Yes. Right. And I just don't know who those future buyers are. Well, it's interesting too. So that, I guess the, the idea being is what a lot of the talking heads are, are out there saying, and some of these talking heads, I really respect and value their opinions, is that like, for example, I think the number I heard is like 60% of commercial real estate loans are held by small regional banks. Uh-huh. So the spark of this conversation was all SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, collapse, that whole issue, blah, blah, blah. And all these other regional banks now that have all these people not going back to the office, all these basically office owners and, and commercial space owners that have their debt with the regional banks. I actually think that's kind of a uh-huh. good thing because it's it's diversified. It's There's four major banks, the big like the big Bank of America's, J.P. Morgan Chase. If all of the commercial real estate was underneath them, you could see a pretty large collapse coming if one was going to happen because one bank, say, owns $50 billion in real estate that's just uh-huh. gone, right? Instead, these regional banks who own a bulk of this are a little bit more nimble. They can change around their balance sheet as needed and make decisions at a quicker level, but also it's diversified. So not one of these banks has all of this and it's regionally diversified as well. So maybe the point I'm making here is that maybe there's not this major gold rush coming in commercial real estate like everybody thinks because maybe these banks are willing to restructure their loans so they don't have to write them down on their balance sheet. I think it's not only maybe will they, I think they're going to be forced to ultimately, right? With like, if some of these banks are super over leveraged, right? especially there's a lot of banks and there's one in every market that focuses exclusively on those kind of assets. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden they're in a market, like they're not in a major market where a ton of people are coming to buy, yeah. but maybe people did when the market was hot, people were seeing for opportunities, but no one's going there in 2023, 2024, where they're just going to let everyone default. Right. Like, that's not how it works. Like, that goes back to, was it, is it, I think it's Trump that said, when if you, was it, if you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owes you. If you owe the bank a billion dollars, you own the bank. Yeah. You own the bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, that's that. true though, right? Honestly. It's very good wisdom there, actually. You're absolutely right. And the whole other piece to that is like, in our market, like we're, I don't know how many, 500, 600,000 uh-huh. people or whatever live here. I would go to the extent of saying, the buyer for one of our large office buildings, probably not here no, locally. Absolutely not. So for a bank, if it actually owned, a regional bank owned it, restructuring the debt is going to be likely because you made the point earlier, who's your end buyer? Yeah. It's probably not going to be locally here, so you're going to be shopping yeah, for a while. it really is. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting space. I mean, there's probably a lot of experts out there that will say like, we're wrong. And if you are listening to this and you guys, you guys are absolute idiots, please, for the love of God, hit me up on Instagram and come on the show yep. and talk to us about why we're wrong. Let's talk to us about it. I love Because I have yet to talk to somebody who can actually convince me that that... Well, and remember, like a lot of this conversation has started because of, again, Silicon Valley Bank and everybody's yeah. like, God, all those offices in Silicon Valley, they're empty because all those tech people don't go to work anymore. Yeah. Isn't that right? And it's like, hey, that's all like 
I don't even know if that's just hearsay. You don't know if you're not actually there. And B, like, that's one uh-huh. area. And nobody really cares that much if San Francisco, like, bites the dust in commercial yeah, nope, real estate. Nope, no one cares <laughs> at all. No one even wants to go nobody there. It's a bad reputation as, like, no. a place exactly. right now. And eventually, because minus what's been going on locally, like, because of supply and demand, the way this works, because it is a badass place to live, if the economics change even a little bit, people will mm-hmm. go back there. Yeah, maybe. Honestly. And so I truly believe that, right? It's like a lot of places that are badass to live. If, you know, obviously San Francisco right now is not a badass yeah. place to live. But if the economics change enough, the politics will change and then money will yeah. come back. Because people people don't mind living in yeah. nice areas. Yeah, I don't know. As long as they don't get stabbed. Yeah, which there is a big question. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know, like like commercials like that, but even multifamilies though, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing when I look at what some of these people are buying stuff for. Yeah, I don't even think about multifamily when I'm talking about commercial real estate right now. Like that's not even in my purview. I'm just like, ugh, I'm turned off by it. I'm just, like so much. And, you know, we just through GoBundance and other things, we were around so many multifamily guys. And I've been looking at these different syndications and things like that from people. I'm just like, I just can't get excited about this. I just don't understand who you're going to sell this property to at the end of it. Uh, you got to be careful because theoretically spreadsheet stuff looks great. Oh, dude. Like when they give you the really shiny, the glossy, the glossy binder with all the cool stuff in it that they're going to do, like that looks good. And it's, I love a deal, but you're making a, a great point that somebody still has to buy it. Yeah. I mean, the and the thing with spreadsheet stuff though is, especially across like, across like larger assets, all you got to do is just like, roll up your numbers into even tens across the 25 different things. And all of a sudden yeah. it changes your valuation yeah. $500,000 on the yeah. exit. Yes. Yeah. Minor roundups yeah. here and there. I mean, yeah. people do that, right? All the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the residential space because it has a clear exit. Like that's really what I come when I look for with investment opportunities for myself is I want there to be a sure. clear exit strategy. Like I don't care if it's something that can happen now or something in like five years. I need to know how the initial money is going to get back. You know, even like, honestly, like a small business, you can have a more clear exit strategy than you can with a multifamily asset right now because you can control it. You can at least sure. like adjust the cash flow more than like, okay, we're going to increase rents 5% every year, which may or may not mm-hmm. happen, right? Yeah. But like the main stuff that I'm interested in from investment standpoint, besides residential real estate, honestly, is like development stuff. Because I feel like if yeah. someone can figure out how to control the cost for development, there's a huge demand for new housing and for new assets, mm-hmm. as opposed to restru- repositioning the 1987 apartment complex that's already been repositioned six times in yeah. its existence. Yeah, it's still a C-class Still a C-class apartment. apartment, but you know, but they- But it has three Airbnb units Yeah, now. but you know, they threw some like wood paneling on the side of it now and updated the windows yeah. and now like, okay, cool, now we can charge 2,700 a unit. It's like, that's not how it freaking works, man. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, like he's on a couple development investments and I, I look at those and I think those have a lot more potential because there is a huge demand for just like new residential construction throughout. Yeah. And that is yeah. where most people want to go in the United States. Like we are not an apartment multifamily culture. We are a yard and white picket fence culture. So that is what people will always try to yeah. shift to and given the opportunity. And so why not invest in that? So when you say new development, you're talking like housing Correct. development as in like a bunch of three, two yeah. ranchers. Well, exactly. Or, or like the townhome stuff. Like we're invested, we invested with Brian Green on, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Both of us invested in that deal. It's townhomes. You know, it is yards, picket fences. People will want to buy that. It's in a yeah. nice area of town, but like 
I don't say like affluent starter home price point. Yeah. Those people will always exist. You know, so the, that exit strategy there is very clear as long as it's done correctly, which I believe the operator will do it correctly in that play, in that space. So I sure hope so. That's why. <laughs> so we invest yeah, right. in because we believe in him more yeah, than anything. Yeah, but it's just so interesting just looking at what everyone's getting into. And the one thing I will say, though, is that I am, as the market's turned, and we do know a lot of the newbie syndicators that got wrecked in 2022, I am so happy to not see so many whiteboard bros on Instagram ads anymore trying to talk about how they use other people's money to buy apartments, and it's so easy, and everyone should OPM, do it. OPM, oh baby. God. OPM. That was like the bane of real estate education for so long was all these people. It was a rough one there yeah. for a while. We all went through it. We, we saw it. We lived it. We felt it. I'm yeah. glad it's over. But anyways, so yeah, I don't know. It's funny to have you on that. But the residential side, man, I still like it as long as we can find stuff. But honestly, right now, my interest is just on business revenue with right now right. is the asset valuations kind of get a little bit weird. Cash flow is hard to find amongst properties. Why focus on trying to squeeze cash flow instead? You could just focus on generating more business revenue, and that's going to get you a much larger return anyway. Yeah, that's a good one because so passive income in general, <laughs> it's hard to turn up and down just by its nature. If it's passive, it's not going to it's not going to be as great typically as active, and it's not going to have as many levers you can pull as an active income like a business income. Like you can't market to more buyer or to more tenants in your real estate to get a higher <laughs> demand. But you sure can market to more clients in your active income business and bring in more revenue. Yeah, exactly. You know, a house still only rents. Even if you rent it by the room, if it has three bedrooms, you only can rent it three yeah. bedrooms to three different people. You can get as creative and house second as you want. But that passive income, and I, and I would add to this, the more creative you get on your passive real estate investment income, the more active mm -hmm. it becomes. As we find out with medium term and short term rentals and rent by the room, there just becomes more work and effort. And that's why you get yeah. paid more. But there's really kind of this like diminishing returns on what you can do to that building or that structure. Run your business, if you have a good solid business plan, business model, the more money you invest in things like marketing and operational efficiencies, the more money you put in your pocket. Yeah. And I mean, and I would argue that people constantly trying to squeeze out that extra quote unquote passive cash flow that's no longer passive. Yeah. That's actually what keeps people stuck in their yeah. current situations. I had an Instagram post that I did not see this explain to me. Got quite a lot of traction over the weekend. Okay. And I didn't see it. So I had I had two. I'll talk about the first one first. It's on topic with this. But I had two back to back that is sane. Right? Like unless you have a super high paying job and a super low you know, monthly nut, you're never going to have a capital. Dude, I love that, actually. Let me stop you for a second. I love that because that is a point that I've thought about so many times where you hear about people that are like, yeah, I just... That's not how it works. I just bought a rental property and then the cash flow from that paid for my next one. And I'm like, that's what I thought I was going to do when I started. And that did not work. Granted, I had extra money from cash flow, but it wasn't enough to buy my next property, the active income I actually yeah. produced, which through a job was what allowed me to buy that next one. And so if, you have, if you're really just focused on passive income and what the gurus say is then your passive income buys more passive income, magnify it that way, that quickly anyways. Yeah, it does. And the thing is, is that whole philosophy that kind of comes from Brandon Turner back in the talk about the stack, you know, in like 2010, 2011, he's like, mm -hmm. that's back when you could buy in a lot of markets a $100,000 property that would rent for $1,000 a month. You'd have these 1% rule, sure. 
But a lot of that comes from that whole concept of the stack, right? We're just talking about where you can get super high cash flow immediately you buy stuff. That is gone. That doesn't exist anymore, right? When you could just like have a traditional passive mm-hmm. long-term tenant in these properties and, you know, it just turns out money. Because if you did that, right, and like realistically, if you could save up 40 grand to buy $200,000 properties in each cash flow, yeah. 800 to $1,000 a month, yeah, you really can use that to buy more properties, right? I mean, you save 24 grand a year, so you can use that to buy. I mean, the math still doesn't work out, but whatever. You only make 24 grand a year off of those two, and you said you needed... See, I'm already making it idealistic, and you're shooting it down. So that's how bullshit it is. <laughs> but we both also know it doesn't case yeah. 20, 20% down is just what the bank wants. It doesn't include your closing costs and all the other costs to do this. Because I've thought about this before, and that's why I can appreciate your post, although I did not see it, like it, or follow it, apparently. It's just because I've thought about that, and I'm like, it actually doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, and what people need to do is focus on, so this is, a, I, I probably stole this from somewhere without realizing it, but you focus on making massive income rather than passive income. Yeah. You totally had to steal that from something. That sounds way too I good. I have no idea where I stole it from. When I was filming the reel, it just rolled off the tongue. Yeah. But then you can... Uh, you can take credit for it, though. <laughs> you can take credit for it. <laughs> that, that, might, that should be a shirt right there, too. Yeah, but you, you can you can make you can escape a W two much faster doing that, right? I gotta go listen to it. Massive income. Yeah, because well, also income. too, not only does it prison and not only go allow you to buy more assets and make more cash flow, but like literally, if you can learn how to just like make, you can escape a lot of things. Five hundred thousand dollars. Who who gives a shit about your eighty thousand dollar a year job <laughs> at that point? Yeah, so much easier. Dude. And honestly, honestly, I think that. The more we get into this, I think the equation to making $500,000 is a lot easier than making like 150000 passively. It's significantly easier. I think the equation of how to crack that code, it may not seem that way because people naturally would think, well, you know, if you have to apply effort and dollars are paid by effort, like it would make sense that that would be harder because it's more dollars. But I think that I think it's easier. Mm-hmm. And it, let's put in an analogy of flipping a house. You can go buy a house. You can flip it and mm-hmm. make, say... inside of 12 weeks. That would be really hard to do on buying buying that same house, turning it around and renting it. It'd be pretty challenging to make 30 grand in 12 weeks. I mean, and holding onto the assets is what gives you long-term wealth. But if your goal is to escape your W-2, like that's really your goal, honestly, you should not care about long-term wealth right away. You should care about capital generation and learning how to get the skills that allow you to generate that capital so here's the other thing too, is whether that's in real estate, you know, if that's a real estate, you can take those same skills and you can go and put yep. it into other stuff too. Like learning how to make money. Once you learn like basic business skills and like kind yep. of, you know, how to market, how to create a product, how to do those sort of things, you can translate that into literally anything that you want. Right. It's a lot more to yeah, translate it, but you're absolutely right. You know, but that's a skill set on its own. And also too, I th- one time something that I've found personally is when you're kind of in control of your own destiny like that, I'm not as concerned about passive income because I don't freaking hate every day. Like I'm in control of my own destiny, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's worth it, a lot of money right there, being in control of your own destiny, what you're saying there. But yeah, so that that was that was one of my Instagrams went pretty big, which I think is just a super big thing you really consider. But but my my second one, and this one was really fun. People got super inflammatory. I learned something there. And wow. So what I said in the on my my other reel. No, Mike, I just weren't messed, by the way, if you want to follow me. <laughs> I will follow you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> hey, plug it. But I said that someone that has opportunities with your money, 
okay, like you're a real estate investor, you shouldn't buy a car, like a new car, you should lease it because then you have a super low monthly payment. And I basically said like, why would you buy a car for like 30 grand when you can instead go and buy like a property for with a $30,000 down payment and get enough cash flow to cover your lease payment, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, leasing cars is something that people will like die on that hill. Oh, dude. Not piss people off? No, but people will die on that hill so hard. I was getting like DMs of people that are like, you're a fucking idiot. And I was like, why? It's such a 1% thing too. Like it does not matter. It doesn't matter. Because it works out to cost more money when you lease. Like, yeah, it does. Absolutely. But you're not talking about opportunity costs. No, they're not talking about opportunity costs. Everyone's like, well, why don't you just go and buy like a 04, you know, Honda Civic? That's what I drive. I'm like, because I don't fucking want to drive an 04 Honda Civic. I want a car that has Bluetooth. Because <laughs> I don't want to. I can't, I, dude, I'm resonating. I don't always necessarily agree with you 100% on this, but I do 100% agree. I, when I bought my truck, I leased that thing. And my logic was 100%. And I did the math. I was like, oh, this will cost me more long-term. But you know what? When I leased it, I didn't have to do. I didn't have to come out of money, pocket on a bunch of money, which was, I think, right at the time I was renovating a property. Uh-huh. I had bought and renovated a property or I was going, I just was planning to buy another. I think that's what happened because I think I bought my other uh-huh. state rental after that. And so the cash in my pocket was more important to me. But I also looked at it from a standpoint of like, oh, I get a new vehicle. I don't got to worry about any of the maintenance. I don't have to worry about tires. I don't have to worry about anything. And for me, like not even having to think about it, sure, it costs more money because it's a lot easier on me. And so I expect to pay more money. I don't care. So what they'll all say to you is this what they all said to me is they're like, well, my maintenance on my car costs $150 a year. I'm like, yeah, it does right now until something breaks on it and then you got to get it fixed and it will always happen when you're on a freaking road trip. Yeah. But even then, like, I'd rather have the peace of mind. Like, I don't really care. Like, if I'm going to have to drive a vehicle, why should it be a vehicle that's easy to worry about? And Ugh. you and I have admitted we're like not car guys. Like, I don't want to have to go work on my car, take my car to the shop, have to worry... I literally do not even like having to go like the idea of buying tires for my car. People are gonna be like, oh, you're such an idiot. It's like, no, like I've done it before. I know how to maintain vehicles. I grew up working on a car. Like, I get it. I know it and I don't want to do it. And my mind, my brain power is applied elsewhere at a lot higher dollar per hour. Exactly. It, it is, you know, insurance and a privilege, I guess, to not have to care about spending an extra few thousand dollars on a car. But I would also tell people that the amount of time that you spend worrying about that you should just go and get skills to not have to worry about the extra $2,000, $3,000 a year on your car. <laughs> yeah. One, it doesn't actually. No. Like to lease a car, it's not that much money. Like if you get like a reasonable car, yeah. I guess like you're talking like a few hundred bucks a month. You know what I mean? Like it's not like that bad. Yeah. My brand new Subaru Crosstrek is $300 a month lease payment. Yeah. It's, it is a great, it's a great, great car, car dude. <laughs> so three fifty. dollars so you're saying, yeah, and it, 350 a month with probably a little bit of money to do the down on the lease or maybe zero. I don't know what you did. Like, that's not that much. So if you're talking the difference between... It was $2,000 down. Okay, for the, so 350 I don't know that you could get any lower yeah. than 350 So I, I could have gotten lower. So I got like the limited one that has like the nicer interior and all that sort of stuff. I could have gotten another one. It would have been like 285 But I mean, you could not buy a car and have a lower no, payment. No, literally couldn't. It would be like double that probably double that. And not only that, but then I would, if it was a new car, you know, I would have debt that is a liability. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but because they want my car back because they can now sell these used cars to all these idiots who want these used cars. I say idiots. I mean, it is my responsible thing to buy a used car. 
they yeah. are willing to waive the rest of my lease to give me a brand new one for the same payment. Right. Yeah. Cause they, Sweet. there's a high demand for it. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yes. And financially, like you and I, we said this a hundred times now, like it's a better decision. Yeah. But when you have so. other opportunity costs, it's like, who cares? Yeah, you're right. It is a better decision financially, if especially if you, your W-2, your income's fixed, you have all that other sort of stuff. But yeah, if you have other opportunities, definitely leasing makes more sense. And the funny thing is, the other thing that everyone always said is, they're like, yeah, as long as you don't like exceed your miles that you have in your lease agreement. Yeah, which is true. And I was like, what do we even pay if I go over? I went and I looked it up. It's like 15 cents a mile for going over. Over your lease. So yeah, for the over like my mileage allowance for my lease. Yeah, but that's such a that's such an excuse because people have told me that before. I, it's my, nothing, dude. It's $150 for every thousand miles. No, I know, but it's like it makes an excuse, right? But like yeah. my lease agreement was 12,000 miles a year. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I drive like 6,000 miles a year personally. Yeah, so exactly. Like, I don't even get close. I guess if you had to commute for your job or like you did Uber or something like that, maybe you'd be concerned about it, but. Yeah, you're driving from like Spokane to Coeur d'Alene twice a day. Like, like I said, it's a 1% thing. Honestly, yeah. like in the grand scheme of financial freedom stuff, like you should do what's easier for you to grow and grow your wealth. Yeah. And money in my pocket's always been way more important to me. Absolutely. Like cash, cash now, because I can invest that cash now as opposed yeah. to paying cash for anything that I could get leverage on of some sort. And the cool thing about cars is you don't have to get leverage because you can lease it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you still get all the same functionality and customize it. You can do everything you want with it. And you just got to keep it in decent enough shape that when you trade it back in, that they can resell it. But anyway, so I got a lot of people that were fired up about that. Yeah, you got me fired up. <laughs> but yeah, that was probably one of my, my best uh, like responses of uh, people, like posts I've ever had on Instagram on something where people were just like angry. Like I'm I, glad. I have, I've never had one like that before. <laughs> That's good. Uh, we should just like write down a list of like life choices that have very opposing viewpoints and you'll probably have a huge engagement. Boost. Yeah, then do what Fox News says. Just find the most inflammatory thing and make it even more inflammatory and just post it. Exactly. And like that's, and then yeah. you profit, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's it. It's called being a media mogul, Mike. Have you not seen what all these people are doing? God, it's the worst. I don't get me started. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, real estate wise, and we're on a wrap up time here. Well, so we're almost there. Isn't going good. Had several of our closings get weird with some closing issues with one of our partners. You know, it's always just funny to me when you get going with some of these situations of like stuff that you think should be obvious, just like isn't. Yeah. You know, about like, oh, no one talked to the escrow company. Well, we need to correct that internal process a little bit. So many like things in real estate and in business could be solved with a conversation in our very communication based uh -huh. closing the transaction on a property because you're involving so many parties is all about communication. And if I could give you a tip to any investor out there to try to like avoid as many of these whoopsies as you can, like pick up the phone and call your title company, call your title agent and just let them know, hey, you have a contract inbound from me. This is the situation. This is how it's going to work out. And then talk to your end buyer, talk to your seller, whoever that is, and just say, just so you know, this is how the process works. Because you'll be surprised just that little step. Most people don't get it or understand it. But also when you're sending these things to people, you're asking them to do work. And although you are paying them, like title and escrow, you are paying them. So they should want to do their job. That soft touch right there is enough to be like, oh, 
I'll go the extra step because Dan picked up the phone and called me. He didn't just send me an email telling me to do something. That's just how humans work. Well, it's just going back. I mean, all I've actually began, we were talking about the employment thing, the people that reach out, they instantly stand out, Yeah. right? So if you send in your title documents, you know, you send in your purchase and sale needing to get title and escrow opened. If you give them that little call, you immediately like, oh yeah, we know these people, we know the situation. They're going to prioritize. Mm -hmm. It is a natural human instinct because they now have an extra connection outside of just an email that randomly popped into their inbox one yep. day. Yep. And in, it takes less than five minutes and it makes such a huge difference. Yep. But real estate especially, I don't know why people are so bad at that. When it's literally, the whole job is communication, but people yeah. just don't communicate. And yeah. it's just so frustrating. I don't know why. And And recognize like you can't, Here's another thing, people, and, and this is as we're learning, as we work with partners and stuff that may not have the same experience. You can't just like say, oh, the closing date is this day and then expect to show up that day and close, especially if you're getting a loan or hard money or any type of financing that's not going to be written from your bank. Like if uh -huh. you're not going to get a cashier's check, they're going to have to organize and have all those documents ready for you to sign. That's the whole point of having like a notarized title agent or escrow agent as well as like most of those documents need that notary and they uh -huh. need to organize that. They need to understand those documents before because all of these people give them random different docs and they have to understand what those look like and what they mean so that they can actually get you to sign in the right spot and then close on time. Uh -huh. Because again, all these documents look different from whoever the hell are bringing them. And so like actually like sharing what you're planning to do as soon as possible with them, they can get organized and they can jump on and help you out unless they're just a shitty title company, which that does happen sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever been to a closing where it's very obvious that the person did not look at all the documents oh, yeah. beforehand? Oh, yeah. oh dude, yeah. it's the most uncomfortable thing because yeah. they get all frazzled and then yeah. you're sitting there sweating and you're like, yeah. well, shit, am I doing this right? Right. You're like, like oh, I have God, no idea. Do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I've been there and I've been there with like, where the title agent that I respect, they're like, honestly, I didn't look at these, so I hope you know where to sign. It's like, yeah, we're good. Like when it's like a private lender type doc, you know what I mean? Which usually we help our private lenders prep those docs anyways, so we know what's going on. But yeah, it's it's just like that little thing. You gotta remember, I mean, their job is to get everything in order, get you to sign in to close on a certain time and record on a certain time because all the contracts say that. Uh -huh. But if you aren't doing your job by participating within that through communication, they don't know and you can't expect them to know or take action for you at the last minute. Yeah. It takes work. It's effort. And it's especially if you're like selling documents and things like that, uh, selling properties, where it's always like extra documents that vary a lot. So like yeah. when I sold all my my Minnesota properties, I booked a uh, notary down at our local bank here to go and sign yeah. all the documents. I just notarized. So booked it, sent everything to them. Three days later, went down there to get everything signed. And the guy's like, yep, so uh, here you go. And basically just like handed me the documents. And I was like, okay, like, where do I go he's with like, this? What and do I do? Like, yeah, and I was like, okay. So I just like started churning through it. And I was like, what is this form? Like, I actually don't know what I'm supposed to fill out on this. And he's like, I've never seen one like this before. I'm Mind like, you, this guy is doing this for free of charge. <laughs> and Mike expected him to <laughs> review hey, a hundred page document. <laughs> they're not free. They are holding literally hundreds of thousands That's of dollars. True. They're making some money. You're right. Yeah, yeah. They make a lot of money off us every single month from <laughs> our deposits as well as our debt. Oh, man. I know how that happens because I have to go down there quite often to do documents for our business to get notarized. And so I know what to expect when I go there because I just show up because everybody there's a notary. And I'm like, hey, can you sign this? Like, where do you... They're like, okay, I think you signed here. I'm like, yeah, I think so too. So that's normally what I do, but this was a substantial set of documents. Yeah. So I went through the proper process. I booked it. 
I sent them all the stuff. I did what they were supposed to do and didn't make a difference. They were still just like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I didn't read this shit. Yeah, I, I have no <laughs> idea. So anyways, but yeah, that's been our, that's been our big lesson of the week is over communicate. Yeah. If you're worried about being that pain in the ass communicator, just good. do it. That means that you're doing it enough because when all of a sudden you have a bunch of stuff that goes sideways and gets delayed, that yep. sucks. And it's yep. never very fun for anybody. It's true. Cool. All right. I think that's our time. Cool, guys. Well, thanks for listening. If uh, you want to prove me wrong on commercial or multifamily real estate, please shoot me a DM because like that is something I'm itching to understand better. And I just don't get it. I don't know what people are planning, what people are trying to do. I still think people are lying to themselves and pretending like it's 2021, 2001. I don't even know what the hell was happening back then. 2021. So shoot me a, a DM on Mike underscore invest. And if you can prove me wrong, bring on the show and you can tell all of the listeners on the air why Mike and Dan are idiots and you really should look at those assets. But I'll still disagree with you probably. But anyways, go check that out. And you should go to collectingkeyspodcast.com slash free. Did a free five-step guide, start generating off-market leads so you can start getting your own opportunities to make real money and make massive income and not passive income and lean into that. I, I definitely need to find where I stole that from. A quick Google search will probably. Yeah, probably. Throw that chat, JBT. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to quote that and just attribute it to like Abraham Lincoln or somebody. You, you know, that's that. That's what people do these days. But anyways, guys, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. See ya.